0: Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We ask that you would now come by your Holy Spirit and bring your word to life in our hearts. Help us to know you, to revere you, to set a holy fear upon you, that we would love you and obey you. We ask that you would do this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, friends, we're working through a study of 1 Peter, and so we're now looking at verses 17 through 19 in chapter 1. So I encourage you to follow along. If you have a Bible, you can, you can look, or if you've got uh, the handout on the back of the handout, should be the, uh, the passage broken out in a little bit of a structural outline, if that's helpful to you. <clears throat> Fear is a powerful and fairly complicated emotion. There are lots of things that I've been afraid of, even continue to be afraid of, in my life. Afraid of falling. Afraid of failing. Afraid of disapproval. Sometimes afraid of getting hurt. And our fears, as you can just tell from that short list, can influence our decisions. We'll do things because we're afraid of what will happen. And sometimes we'll do things because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't. In English, there's a relationship between the word fear and the word respect, or at least in the way that we use those words. Tradesmen will say, you should respect a tool. What they mean is that you need to have a healthy regard for the fact that a powerful tool can, in an instant, cause a significant, even irreversible injury. In that sense, to say or to speak about someone who has no fear, that's not a good thing, right? Someone in that sense who has no fear has no regard for the consequences of their actions. But on the other end of the spectrum, to have an improperly great fear can also be paralyzing, even dangerous. A doctor who is too afraid of causing a patient any pain will be unable to set a bone or restore a joint. So who and what we fear plays such an influential role in our life as just an ordinary human and as a, especially as a Christian that Peter includes it as one of the four marks that define Christian character. You can see these in this passage. You can see hope in verse 13, holiness in verse 15, love in verse 22, and here, fear. He says in verse 17, if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Now, on the one hand, Peter does not mean that Christians ought to be constantly trembling. That that, that to be Christian means to be constantly frightened. In fact, he's going to say quite the opposite on several occasions in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, when he's addressing Uh, Wives who have unbelieving husbands, he says to them, among other things, comparing them to Sarah, if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And in chapter, or in, uh, sorry, in chapter 3, verse 14, when he's describing how if we might suffer, says, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. So Peter cannot mean that a Christian's life is a life that's marked by trembling, fear, that we're afraid of other people. That's not what he means. He means that our lives should be marked by a reverential awe, a holy fear for God and for God alone. And this is because in this sense, who or what you fear is in the ultimate sense of that word, is the person or the idea that has the last word in your life. The person you fear is the person whose opinion matters the most to you. What you fear is the idea to which you are most loyal in this context, in this sense. Whatever or whoever Holds your highest regard, your fear, is ultimately what will shape and guide every dimension of your life. So, the main idea of today's study is live your life by a holy fear. Live your life by holy fear. There are lots of things that we could consider in this passage. Always be happy to talk to you about ones we don't get to. We're focusing mostly on this idea today. So let's work through it with a series of ideas. The first is that to fear the Lord means to give him our ultimate regard in all of life. To fear the Lord means to give him our ultimate regard in all of life. I'm Getting this from verse 17 where he says, If you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds... Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So to fear God does not mean properly to be terrified of God. We aren't to relate to God like we would a terrorist. We're not frightened of the extraordinary damage that he threatens to do. But rather it means to live acknowledging his sovereign authority to decide our destiny. So if you've ever seen a court case or if you've ever been a part of a court case and you've sat under a judge, then you know there's a certain degree of awe and reverence that you have towards that person because that person holds the power to render a verdict about the decision that's before them. We should think of our entire life as sitting before God's holy verdict. We should remember God is the one who gets to decide ultimately what happens with us. So in most cases, to say that we fear God means we believe in him. And as a consequence, we obey him. So you would say someone fears God if they believe God, and because they believe God, they obey him. So when God says, don't murder, they obey. They don't murder because they believe God. That posture could be described as fearing him. Fearing God means placing priority on our relationship to him and his commands over all others, no matter how precious. Perhaps the quintessential example, the example that comes quickest to our minds would be Abraham and Isaac. God commands Abraham to sacrifice the child of promise. The fulfillment of all of his hopes, everything that God has promised is in the life of this young boy, and God says, sacrifice him to me. And at the end, what does God say? In chapter 22, verse 12, he said, do not lay your hands on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God. So that meant he believed him, and as a consequence, he obeyed him. Another example, even though it doesn't sound quite the same, is what Jesus says in Matthew 10, verses 37 through 39. When Jesus is explaining what it means to follow him, he says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, somebody who gives their highest regard, their greatest priority, their their big aim in life is to please their mother and their father, even to the point that that stands higher than Christ can't effectively follow Christ. It means, to fear God means obeying God's clear commands no matter the consequences. You might think of Daniel. Famously, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are told, you will, when you hear the music, bow down to the statue that I've erected. If you don't, I will throw you into a furnace. They don't sit there and think, like, well, furnace... Obeying God. Furnace. They live in a holy fear of God. They are so concerned to obey God. They say, you can do whatever you want to us. Our God has the power to save us, but even if he doesn't, we're not bowing down to your image. Fearing God then means assessing everything in our life with respect to his greatness and with respect to his glory. So Peter then provides three specific ways that a holy fear of God should mark and direct a believer's life. He tells us that we should fear God because he is our father. We should fear God because he is our judge. And we should fear God because he's our redeemer. So we're going to flesh those ideas out in the following points. The next idea is that the fear of the Lord teaches us to long to please God. The fear of the Lord teaches us to long to please God. And I'm getting this from the very first portion of verse 17. He says, if you call on him as father, conduct yourselves with fear. So the illustration he's using is just as a son longs to please the father that he loves, so he also fears displeasing him. These are two sides of the same coin. You can't really want desperately to please someone that you love without being afraid of not pleasing them. The two come and go together. This is why Isaiah describes the Messiah this way. So Isaiah in chapter 11, verses 2 and 3 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, specifically says, The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Well, that gets confirmed. We see that picked up in John chapter 8, verse 29, where Jesus says, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus delights to do what pleases his father. And that is the same as saying Jesus lived in a holy fear of God. He feared displeasing him and he wanted to please him. See, friends, what you'll see in this study, and if you were to dig deeper across Scripture, you'll see that God provides many different ways to draw us into obedience, to draw us into a relationship with Him. He provides here both the push, the fear of His displeasure, I am afraid. Of my father's displeasure, if I were to do this thing, so I will obey. And he also provides the pull of his pleasure. I love how delighted my father is when I do this, so I'm going to do this. And these two impetuses, these impetus, are, are pulling and pushing to draw us closer to him. God provides both. And this invites us to ask in our day-to-day lives, a good question that you can ask is, would what I'm about to do or say or choose please my Father? Perhaps some of us, if you grew up in a a good home, at some point you reached an age where your parents no longer made every single decision for you. They, They left you free and at some point they said to you something like, you know, you came to them and said, oh, I really want to go to this you know, party on the weekend. Or I really want to go on this trip to this place. And, and they might say, that's your decision to make. However, I think you know what we would recommend that you do. You get to a point where you know. You know what your father would have you do. You have to choose. There's three implications of that question. The first is that God's children would rather submit to his discipline than suffer his wrath. God's children would rather submit to his discipline than suffer his wrath. Meaning, someone who fears the Lord wants to repent. If you were in our Amos study this morning, you see how northern Israel is being called to repent by the prophet, but they have no interest in doing so. They would rather the pleasures of sin than the discipline of God. They'd they'd rather not repent. They don't care about meeting God with a clear conscience. But God's child would rather submit to his discipline and repent and be restored to unity with his heavenly Father than suffer his wrath, than be separated from him. Secondly, God's children have regard for their father's discipline. We choose to learn from it. We let it have its full effect. I've, I can't really illustrate this very easily, but I think we all probably know of situations where someone, maybe in a class you were in, you know, the teacher would discipline them or, or provide some sort of punishment, and it just had no effect. No matter how many times this happened, the behavior would continue. And that's a picture of someone who isn't willing to learn from discipline has no interest in it. But God's children care about their father's discipline. And they feel his pressure. They go, I want to learn. I want to do differently. Help me, Father. Thirdly, God's children are so marked by a desire to please their heavenly father that they grow less and less willing to risk his displeasure for the reward of sin. One of the marks of God's children is over the course of your life, you're going to grow more and more in love with the pleasure of your heavenly Father. And you're going to find his pleasure more and more pleasurable. You're going to delight in his delight more as you grow. And that is going to make the desires of sin weaker and weaker and weaker. You're you're not going to be willing to risk God's displeasure for the fleeting passion of sin. So the fear of the Lord teaches us to long to please God. Secondly, the fear of the Lord teaches us to live in light of God's judgment. The fear of the Lord teaches us to live in light of God's judgment. This I'm getting from the statement, who judges impartially. So if you call on him as father, you want to please him, you're afraid of his displeasure, and you recognize that he judges impartially according to each one's work or deeds, So while a holy fear of God affects every aspect of our life, and we'll get to that by the end, Peter's primary concern in this passage is how a holy fear of God helps us say no to sin. And you can see that if you pair verse 15 and verse 17 against each other. In verse 15 he says, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. In verse 17, he uses a verb based on that. He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. So his primary concern here is how the fear of God helps us say no to sin. This is why he then says, if you call on him as father who judges impartially, conduct yourselves with fear. Peter is reminding these Christians some of whom are going to face legal penalties or social penalties, repercussions because of their conversion, that there is a higher court to which we all must answer. And this cuts two ways, at least. On the one hand, we can rest assured that whatever we suffer and whatever we lose for our faith God will ultimately restore and vindicate. So, Some of us have experienced situations either in our job or, or perhaps in legal circumstances where because of your Christian faith and the way that that led you to, to live your life, you suffered, you lost something. Or perhaps some of us are dealing with the fact that our jobs are getting harder to do as a conscientious Christian And we're looking at the possibility that I may not be able to get promoted. I may not be able to move up. Or I may not be able to work in this capacity if I continue to hold my convictions. Peter says, remember, whatever you lose, God can restore. And whatever you lose for Christ, God will restore. He says it in chapter 5, verse 10. He says, and after you have suffered a little while. So he reminds you that even though it seems long to us, it's really actually quite short. He says, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Just take a moment. Imagine that moment. Just take that Whatever difficulty you've gone through, just for a moment, imagine your heavenly Father reaching out, touching you, and saying, I'm going to restore to you. Everything that you lost. There is no earthly kingdom. There is no earthly court that has the authority to deprive us of the hope or the reward that we have in Christ. So on the one hand, remembering that God is judge means no court on this earth has the power to deprive us of our inheritance and reward and delight in Christ. They can't do it. By the same token we need to remember that escaping judgment in this world does not mean that we escape God's. Not for them and not for us. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 3 through 5, he says, But with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted." It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Peter here reminds believers that their election, their calling in God does not free them from obedience. And just because earthly courts have no lasting authority over us does not mean there's not a court that we will answer to on the contrary we are held to a far higher standard than the world the world's courts don't care about half the things that god cares about just because something pleases the world does not mean it pleases god there are things that the pagans can do that a christian simply cannot We need a holy fear of God to turn away from sin. That's why Proverbs 16, verse 6 says, By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for. Praise be to God. And by fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. This is why one of the important ways to cultivate a holy fear of God is by considering his final judgment. Earthly courts can be corrupted, friends. Police can be evaded. Parents can be deceived. Punishments can be escaped. But not heaven's justice. Hebrews 4 verse 13, the author says, No creature is hidden from his sight but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. There is nothing that we can do to conceal what's really going on in our heart from God. Now, obviously, this is not the only motivation for right living, right? God does not simply provide the threat of judgment to turn us away from evil, but it would be wrong for us to say that he doesn't provide it. God provides all manner of helps to us, as we shall see presently, to avoid the danger of sin. It was Jesus himself who said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Peter wants us to walk with such reverence for God's judgment that on the one hand, The threats of the ungodly cannot dissuade us from persevering in obedience. So when the world says, you keep doing this, and we're going to do this. Peter says, I want you to be so certain of God's higher court. No threat will turn you off from obeying God. And on the other hand, that the pleasures of sin are simply no match for God's displeasure. That when Satan offers us the tantalizing, you know you want this, you know you want to do this, it'll be wonderful, you will enjoy it. That our heart says, I have a father who will reward my obedience far better than any momentary sin could ever reward the soul. Our Christianity, friends, must have room both for God's sin-hating holiness as well as for God's sinner-loving mercy. God loves to have mercy on sinners, and God hates sin. So we must learn to weigh out the vain and passing and deceptive, distracting lures of sin against the substantial, weighty, and terrifying wrath and rewards of God. A sure mark of genuine work of grace in a believer's life is a growing willingness to turn away from sin for the love of God's goodness and for fear of his wrath. That's because a true and a holy fear of God encourages us to choose to do right by exposing the vanity of sin. So that's the next idea you can see in this passage is the fear of the Lord teaches us to love holiness by exposing sin's vanity. Look at the next verse, it says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. To be futile means to come to nothing. It means to have no lasting purpose or ultimate value. It's ineffective. It doesn't provide what it describes. So this speaks to the ephemeral, the fleeting, the insubstantial nature of sin and its rewards. And this is what John means when he writes to the church in Ephesus in 1 John 2, 16 through 17. He says, For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. He's contrasting how the world looks substantial The rewards of sin seem as though they're going to last forever, but they won't. Either Christ will return or you and I will die and we will meet our maker and you will bring nothing with you to that decision, to that judgment. Friends, comparing the pleasure of sin to the glory of Christ is like comparing strawberries to gemstones. Strawberries are sweet, but they rot in a week. In your heart contrast a night of drunkenness, a night of ill-gotten gain, a moment of impure pleasure with God's favor and the enduring reward of righteousness. They simply cannot be compared. That's why the psalmist says in Psalm 4 verse 7, he says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. The pleasures of God are more substantial and more lasting than a belly full of food and wine. That's why he says in Psalm 16 verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence there is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. One of the first evidences of a genuine conversion is a growing distaste for and a growing dissatisfaction with the fleeting, insubstantial, and vain pleasures of this life. If you want to think more about that, you could just read the book Ecclesiastes. It is a long explanation of how the fleeting pleasures of this life are vain. And ultimately, he will conclude that the sum of the matters is to fear God. Friends, tasting the goodness of God turns the savor of sin to ash in our mouth. Peter's going to compare these thoughts in chapter 2, verse 3. He says, Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now friends, incidentally, this is a wonderful prayer for anyone in your life who is in love with the world. Ask God to give them a taste for his goodness because the taste of the goodness of God makes sin turn to ash in our mouth. Ask God to cause the pleasures of their sin to become distasteful, to become empty. Help them see the hollowness and the vanity that they're pursuing and instead to delight more fully, truly, richly, deeply in Christ to taste how good God is and how empty the world is. Friend, by fearing the Lord and by trusting his word, you will learn to love holiness and to be dissatisfied with sin sin will disappoint you. And in this way, a holy fear of the Lord confronts what in the moment does, I admit, feel strong, but will ultimately prove unsatisfying. Sometimes we speak about that fear in our modern parlance as FOMO, right? The fear of missing out. And that is a fear that guides the life just as a fear of the lord can guide the life the fear of missing out so the world tries to lure you in saying if you don't do this you're going to miss out you only get one life make it a good one you're only young once live it up because if you don't you won't have another chance there is nothing waiting for you this is all there is And it encourages you to live by fear. Fear, missing out, therefore live this way. And God says, come, I have better things in store for you. Fear me. The fear of the Lord teaches us that there's more to life than a party. There's more to life than the inner circle. There's more to life than the perfect job. There's more to life than the perfect spouse. There's more to life than the perfect hobby. There are better and more enduring joys than food, alcohol, money, or impurity can offer us. A right understanding of the value and the effect of the cross impoverishes the world's richest pleasures. That's the next idea that Peter teases out. He says, the fear of the Lord teaches us to treasure his cross and the gospel. If our old ways seem vain and empty, the fear of the Lord exposes how sin is empty. The fear of the Lord shows us to treasure his cross and his gospel. He says, knowing that you were ransomed, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. So how do you encourage, how do you grow this fear of the Lord? Set your mind on the ransom of the cross of Jesus Christ. Peter encourages us to grow a holy fear, to grow a reverence for God by reflecting on God's mighty work of gracious redemption. So a series of conclusions might be drawn, all of which strengthen and help us set our highest regard and our greatest esteem on the God who saved us from sin, death, and hell. First, we have to recognize that the cross is a vivid and terrible picture of the fact that sin has a terrible cost. One of the primary lies that that Satan will offer you is that sin doesn't matter. It doesn't have lasting effects. It doesn't do anything. You're not hurting anybody. It can be insulated somehow. The cross is an amazing picture that sin is not insulated and sin has a terrible cost. It costs the life of the only Son of God. The wages of sin is death. Death. It tells us that we were, as we see in Ephesians 2, dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. We carry, were carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We were by, children, by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So to truly esteem the weight and the glory of the cross, you must realize that you must be ransomed and that you could not ransom yourself. That's why Peter says we were not redeemed with perishable things such as silver or gold. Some of us have more, some of us have less. But if you were to liquidate everything that you have, every asset, every skill, put yourself into indentured servitude, quantify the value, and slide it across the table to God, it would do nothing to cross the chasm of debt that sin has made between you and God. There is nothing we can offer him. What, we're going to offer him silver and gold to pay for an eternal crime against an eternal God? No. To esteem the weight and glory of the cross, you need to realize that you and I were sinners who needed to be ransomed and we could not redeem ourselves. No earthly sum can pay the debt. Instead, like how black velvet reveals the glory of a diamond... It is when we confess the totality of our depravity, that our righteousness is as filthy rags, that the beauty of the gospel becomes more apparent. In the second century, a Christian Mathetes wrote a long and beautiful letter to Diognetus. You can find it for free online. It's a glorious letter. And I'm going to read a lengthy section of it because he just grasps this idea so perfectly. He says, But when our wickedness had reached its height, and it had been clearly shown that its reward, punishment, and death was impending over us, and when the time had come which God had before appointed for manifesting His own kindness and power, how the one love of God, through exceeding regard for men, did not regard us with hatred, nor thrust us away. Nor remember our iniquity against us, but showed great long suffering and bore with us. He himself bore our iniquities. He gave his own son as a ransom for us, the Holy One. For the transgressors, the blameless one for the wicked, the righteous one for the unrighteous, the incorruptible one for the corruptible, the immortal one for those who are mortal. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? By what other one was it possible that we, the wicked and the ungodly, could be justified than by the only Son of God? Oh, sweet exchange. Oh, unsearchable operation. Oh, benefits surpassing all expectation that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one and that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. Friend, once you drink in, once we drink in the wonderful truth of Christ's atoning sacrifice, it changes you. You can see that in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. Paul concludes, he says, The love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Friend, once you know what Christ saved you from, and once you know what Christ saved you for, you will never want to go back to that place. Pilgrim's Progress speaks to me a lot. And as he's fleeing the city of destruction, two friends come and try and persuade him to go back, obstinate and pliable, and they catch up with him. And he is, he is fleeing the city of destruction on orders from evangelists. So he's running. They've managed to catch him. And he asks, why are you caught up with me? And they say, to persuade you to go back with us. But he said, that can by no means be. You dwell, he said, in the city of destruction, the place where I was born. I see it to be so. And dying there, sooner or later, you will sink lower than the grave into a place that burns with fire and brimstone. Be content, my good neighbors, and go along with me. There is nothing under the sun that could convince Pilgrim to turn back and go back to the city of destruction after having escaped it. Because ultimately, what you can see even in that quote is that the fear of the Lord teaches us to reflect his holiness to others. The fear of the Lord teaches us to reflect his holiness to others. You'll see this come up in chapter 2, verse 17, where he says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So again, friends, we're back to where we started. Who or what you fear is the person or the idea that has the final and decisive say in your life. It's the person who gets the last word. It's the person whose opinion matters the most. Whoever holds your highest regard, your fear, is ultimately what will guide every dimension of your life. It influences who you befriend. It influences how you respond to your parents. It influences how you treat your children. It influences how you're going to speak with and treat your neighbors. It influences how you're going to respond to the government. It changes how you're going to talk to your boss. And this is why Peter calls Christians who are facing a rising tide of antagonism and imminent persecution to let their lives be lived by a holy fear of God and not by a fear of man. It's easy to see how an abusive spouse or how a prejudiced boss or how condemning peers or an inquiring official could intimidate us into concealing our faith. It would simply be easier. Or how a fear of missing out could lead us to swerve from a pattern of holy and faithful obedience. As we continue our study, we're going to see time and again how the fear of the Lord is essential for navigating the challenging relationships that we find in our time of exile. See, by fearing God, Peter wants us to learn to honor those that we come into contact with even when it seems impossible, even when it seems like this person does not deserve my respect, yet God commands us to show them respect. Friends, if you have a holy fear of God, you will be able to respectfully submit to difficult bosses. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. The same word is fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust doesn't mean fear them. It means fear God. Friends, you will be able to show love to your unbelieving spouse. In chapter 3, verse 2, when addressing unbelieving husbands, or the wives of unbelieving husbands, he says, those unbelieving husbands may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see you are respectful, literally it's in fear, and pure conduct. By the way that you conduct your life in a holy fear of God, you may win your unbelieving spouse. It gives you an answer to inquisitive neighbors. In chapter 3, verse 15, he says, But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason, for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and fear. Fear of them? No. Let the fear of God... Guide the way you answer them. Even leads us to be able to honor political figures that we might not agree with or approve of. Remember 2 verse 17. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. A holy fear of God is what makes it possible for Christians to submit to unjust laws. A holy fear of God is what makes it possible for Christians to submit to unjust policies that do not compromise the commands of Christ. And a holy fear of God is what allows a Christian to peacefully and respectfully refuse to obey those laws or policies that do compromise the clear commands of Christ. A fear of God is what gives a Christian the courage to suffer for their faith A fear of God is what gives Christians the meekness to suffer after the manner of our Lord. Because there is more to a Christian than a living hope. There is more to a Christian than a holy life. A Christian is someone who is learning to fear God and God alone. So friends, as you go today and as you think over lunch today, is there someone or something that you give ultimate regard to more than or in competition with God? Is there someone or something that holds more than just your hope, but holds your loyalty? What would it look like for you to fear God more than your boss? What would it look like for you to fear God more than your neighbor, more than your friend? A holy fear of God, far from challenging legitimate authority, is actually what makes it possible and essential for healthy and holy obedience. Recognizing the Lord's ultimate authority is what makes it possible for us and guides us in obeying other lesser, even unjust, authorities. The fear of the Lord lies at the very heart of a Christian's Christ-likeness. It's the core of a Christian's character. So do all you can to cultivate a holy fear of the Lord because this is what it means to live as an exile, to be a citizen ambassador of a heavenly city, someone who would rather please God than drink in the pleasures of sin, someone who treasures the cross, someone so conscious of God's power and God's authority that while they honor everyone, they only fear him. Augustine wrote in his book, Two Cities, City of God, I mean. As Augustine said, two cities have been formed By two loves. The earthly, by the love of self, even to the contempt of God. The heavenly, by the love of God, even to the contempt of self. The former, in a word, glories in itself. The latter, in the Lord. My friends, let us be citizens of that greater city, whose greatest love, deepest joy, highest regard, our fear, is the Lord's. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise that by many means you would draw us to yourself, that not only do you woo us with the sweetness of your grace, the tenderness of your mercy, the kindness of your redemption, but that you warn us by the seriousness and the sobriety of your wrath By pricking us with your discipline, you draw us unto your grace. God, make us obedient children. Let us call you Father and not forget that you are also our judge. And when we tremble in fear, O Lord, console us by reminding us that you have redeemed us and that you will not spill the blood of your Son in vain, but that you will gather us to yourself and build us up in yourself to give us for yourself. Oh Lord, we ask that you would plant a holy fear in our hearts that we would love you more and live lives that are pleasing to you in this present evil age. And we ask it in Jesus' name.